This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Good morning, Sunset. So, what's your favorite Bible story? Noah! Daniel! Same two that got thrown out this morning. Anybody else? Giddy! Do you know who I'm talking about this This today? Gideon? Who else? No one mentioned Jesus again. You just assume... <clears throat> you just assume that... No one picked my favorite either. No. It's from Acts chapter 20. Yes? The Apostle Paul is preaching a midnight sermon in Acts chapter 20, right before he's going to leave the next day. And, well, I'll just read to you the verse. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul droned on and on. It's the actual verse, by the way, Acts 20, verse 9. And uh, I love that this poor sap got called out for sleeping in church, and we're still talking about it several thousand years later. But the story gets better. He falls asleep, falls out of a third-story window, and dies. Don't sleep in church. Paul runs down, raises him back to debt to life through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then returns upstairs and preaches till the next morning and goes right on as if nothing happened. I love that story. There's all sorts of things I could pull from that. But my favorite story growing up as a little boy was Gideon, the one I get to tell today. Now, what little boy wouldn't like a story of armies and little, a small group of men beating a huge army by a great strategy of breaking pots and fla- flames. It's, it's all good. All interesting. And so I loved that story of Gideon. And he was my hero as I was growing up. But today we're going to learn a little bit of the rest of the story. And so I'd like for you to turn to Judges chapter 6. There's a Bible in front of you if you need one, or you can pull out your phones or Bible you brought with you. I'm going to be bouncing around a little in Judges chapter 6 and 7, but you'll be able to find the verses, I think, as I go through. We meet Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. And it says there that this guy named Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. This little detail might not mean much to you until I explain to you what a wine press was, a hole in the ground where they would stomp on grapes to turn them into wine, but basically uh, a big, huge cavern set into the ground. And then I need to explain to you what threshing wheat was. It was a complex process. I was going to bring some here to do it for you. It was a complex process of throwing wheat up in the air and hoping the wind blew off the bad stuff and the good stuff fell down so you could pick it up. Now, where would you want to thresh wheat? You'd want to do it outside and certainly not in a hole. You'd want to do it on the highest ground you could with the wind blowing through so that the shaft blows off the wheat and the good stuff falls to the ground. Gideon was doing it in a wine press. 
Why? Almost certainly because he was scared to death of the Midianites, who in verse 1 it tells us the Israelites had done evil again in the eyes of the Lord, even after all these judges had come, and therefore the Midianites were ruling over the Israelites for seven years, it says there in verse 1. So Gideon is trying to do his living, eke out a living, in a hole in the ground, trying to throw up wheat and see if some wind would come and blow away the bad stuff. So I had to face an uncomfortable fact. My hero Gideon is actually a scared wimp. He's afraid. That's why he's threshing wheat in a wine press. Which makes the God's words to Gideon all the more ironic. They'd actually sound like sarcasm if you didn't know the end of the story. Because look what God says to Gideon in verse 12. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Come on. This guy's threshing wheat in a wine press. And God says he's a great warrior. And Gideon's responses are humorous too. I picture a guy with his eyes about to bug out of his head when God says that, going, what do you want from me? Because look at what he does here. He can't get the excuses out fast enough. Verse 13, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And later in the verse, the Lord has abandoned us. Verse 15, but Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Verse 17, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Verse 36, got to skip down. If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there's dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Verse 39. Don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with this fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And at this point, you should all be happy that I'm not God, because if it was me here, I would employ the trusty lightning bolt to put Gideon out of his misery. The guy really is a wimp. But if I stop to think about it, as I did this week, I realize that I'm a lot more like Gideon than I like to admit. I often let my fear stop me from doing what God is calling me to do. And my excuses are really a lot like Gideon's. I'm not sure I can totally trust you, God. I can't do it because I, I don't have the experience or the, I'm just not that good of a leader or I don't have the background. Or if I was sure it was you, tell, if I knew it was your will, I'd be able to do it, but I'm going to need a sign or two or three. Yeah, I'm a wimp just like Gideon sometimes. When God calls me to serve outside my comfort zone. And I want to run away a lot of times or maybe just quit. 
I felt that way in some recent circumstances where, well, a big fear of mine is failure or lack of respect from people. You know, when I was younger, I used to play sport. I love sports, but I only played one, baseball, because that's the only one I was good at. I ignored all the rest. I had a rule. If I wasn't picked first or second on the team, I just stopped playing. That way no one could hurt me anymore. So I was great at baseball, played it all the time, never touched another sport, never played basketball. Look at me. Maybe that sounds familiar to some of you. So guess what God called me to do recently when I was fearful of these things that, I, that have been struggles for me my whole life? He called me to stay right in the middle of them. He called me to walk right into the teeth of those very fears I had and showed me that he would be with me and showed me that he would walk through them as well and deepened my faith in a way that couldn't have happened in just the normal days. God's still doing that like he does, as we will see, for Gideon. But before we look at the story of Gideon, I want, I want you to think about perhaps your fears We're going to see how God responds to Gideon's. It's better if you maybe perhaps name a fear that you have to yourself. What fear has paralyzed you from doing something that you know that God is calling you to do? I could give you a long list of possibilities, but I probably don't need to. You can probably come up with one on your own. And here's the thing I I would say. If you are feeling like your relationship with God is not vibrant or meaningful, if if it's not as deep as you'd like it to be, then consider what it is that he's asking you to do that scares the daylights out of you. What's that fear you have? The story of Gideon suggests that the next step forward in your spiritual life oftentimes is right into the teeth of those fears. Not to drag you down, not to cause you difficulty, but to show you the power of our Lord and Savior in our lives. And so oftentimes he calls us through his great love right into the midst of our fears. You see, the story of Gideon isn't really about God saving the Israelites from the Midianites or even about the great battle scene that so intrigued me as a boy that we'll see at the end. This is not an action movie, really. It's a romance. God in love with Gideon. So in love with him that he calls him right into the middle of his fears so that he can teach him deeper faith deeper trust, deeper dependence upon him. He surely could do all this stuff without Gideon. He could do whatever he wants without you and me. We get to come along for the ride. We get to be shaped by what God's doing in our lives. God loved Gideon, and that's really clear from the rest of the story. Because only a loving father could put up with all this whining and complaining. Let me show you how God responds to Gideon's fears. So verse 14. This is after Gideon's first complaint. 
And God tells Gideon in 14, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Am I not sending you? I love this truth. It's real explicit here. Go in the strength you do have. There's no qualifications for following God, really. There's no seminary needed. There's no giftedness particularly that's required. And it's certainly not by people who are without fear, without doubt, and have their acts all together. No. God says, go with whatever strength you've got. You don't need to have anything in particular. It seems like the only two things you do have to have to follow God well is hear His voice and be willing to follow. And that's about it. But God, says Gideon next, I don't have any strength at all. God answers, verse 16, I will be with you and we will strike down all of the Midianites together. Another simple, really profound truth, though. God is not asking for your strength, really, whatever you think it might be. God does not need you. You are inadequate for whatever he's calling you to do. That doesn't matter at all, really. God does the work. God wins the victory. It's his strength that wins any battles that we are able to win. His plan will be accomplished. The only question is, are we with him? Are we being shaped as he's accomplishing these things? Is our faith being deepened because we're willing to walk with him right into the middle of the battle? But God, says Gideon, I'm going to need to be sure you will do what you're promising. So I'm going to build an altar. And I want you to give me a sign. Verse 21, here comes the sign. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread that he'd put on the altar. Fire flared from the rock. Ooh, this is getting good. Consuming the meat and bread. Most people think that Gideon's fleece was his first attempt at a sign. He asks for a sign And God wipes out the altar he's built with fire out of the staff of an angel. That'd be good enough for me, I think. Think I, okay, I gotcha. But no, Gideon is still racked by fear. And we find him asking twice more for signs from God with this famous putting out of the fleece. So let's talk about the fleece for a minute. I read the verses earlier about the fleece, right? He put it out. He asked for it to have dew on it, then reversed it. Okay, you got it, right? Verse 39, if you want to look at it in chapter 6, talks about, uh, well, let, verse 38 actually gives the outcome of the fleece. Verse 38 says, Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. 
Again, you'd think it'd be enough. Now, this is two signs he's got, but he asks for a third. No, this time Gideon says, verse 39, God, make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. I'll make it even harder on you. Three times. And at this point, the story is not an action movie. It's not a romance anymore. It's a comedy. Because God really should take my advice and just put Gideon out of his misery. But God grants his request again and fulfills what Gideon's asking for, giving him a sign. Now let's say something about these fleece. Many people have written books about the fleece and how we should put out fleeces today. I even read an article uh, this past week that said that you've got to do it two times to follow what the Bible says and then God will reveal his will to you. Now, I have nothing against asking God for signs, but please, the fleeces that Gideon puts out is not a formula for how we're supposed to do it. Just read the thing in its context. He's asking for these signs because he's scared to death and he's hoping that one of them will let him off the hook for what God's calling him to do. That's what's happening here. If I keep asking, he's going to fail one of these. Gideon had no problem knowing what God wanted him to do. He just had a problem with doing it, which is usually our problem as well. All of this reminds me of when I was at the pool with my kids when they were younger. I used to try to get it. They wanted to jump off the diving board. So I'd be in the water, you know, treading water, trying to get them to come to the edge of the diving board, right? Come on, come on, come on, come jump off. I'll catch you. Are you sure you'll catch me, Dad? Yeah, 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 come on, come on, come on, I'll catch you. Just jump in, give it a try. One, two, are you sure? Are you going to come get me? This goes on for, I don't know, a long time until I finally say, fine, jump in, drown, whatever, I don't care anymore. I'm tired of swimming here, treading water, right? I mean, come on. Which is why I think the best part of the story is the next part. Gideon starts out with 32,000 men in his army. That's still a pittance compared to what he has to fight, which we find out is 135,000. But in chapter 7, God, who, remember, is not, not really so much worried about this battle. That's not his problem. He's shaping Gideon's faith. And so what does he do? He takes the number of men in Israel's army from 32,000 to 10,000 down to 300. 300 men. Now, I think Gideon is backing away from the edge of the diving board here. In fact, they left out a verse in the Bible where Gideon wets his pants. 300 guys against 135,000? I don't care what your strategy is. You ain't winning. Look at how God responds. Judges 7 now, verse 9. Judges 7, verse 9. You've got to see this. This is the best part of the story, not the battle. During the night, it says, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it to your hands. He said that before. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and his Purah and his servant went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted. 
than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend a dream. I had a dream that a round loaf of barley came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has given Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. I love that part. Gideon has asked for three signs. He's been scared to death, and he's thought of every excuse he could think of. And remember Barb said last two weeks, if you need a reminder that God gives you second, third, fourth, fifth chances, Judges is the book for you, here's an exhibit in that truth. Gideon has gotten three signs, and now God knows he's still scared to death. Wouldn't you be? 300 on 135,000? If you're not, you're crazy. And so God has him go down, and oh, just a coincidence, somebody had a dream that he overhears in which he finds out that God is going to give the battle to him. He doesn't, God doesn't even wait this time for Gideon to ask. He responds before he even asks. To meet Gideon right in the middle of his fear and his doubt. Because again, God knows. God knows Gideon's struggling. He knows you and I struggle with fear. He knows we're plagued by doubt. He knows that sometimes he calls us right into the middle of things. We would absolutely want to go the opposite direction. But it's not about the battle. Not really. It's about what God's doing in Gideon's life. And he's the one he calls to be this hero, this leader that, it, that will lead the Israelites through this amazing battle. After this, the story of the battle, to me, that it was so intriguing as a boy, it's still kind of interesting, but now it's kind of anticlimactic. Gideon and his men go to the edge of the camp and blow their trumpets, smash the jars, and hold their torches high. Verse 22, chapter 7, gives you the rest. When 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, and the army fled. Can you imagine being one of the 300? You're watching 135,000 people kill each other, and then run away. Some people have written that Gideon had this great strategy, and when he broke all the pots, it looked like they had more... Come on. 300 against 135,000? Again, I don't care what your strategy is. God won the victory. This really is the story of a God who loves. A God who loved Gideon so much that he called him right into the middle of his fears precisely so that he could meet him there. So that he could do things like give an enemy a dream and allow Gideon to overhear it so that he knows he can fully trust in this God who gives second and third and fourth and fifth chances. A God who loves us so deeply that he will act to drive out fear before we even ask. And a God who doesn't let us sit where we're at, but calls us 
asks us to go right into the middle of our fears sometimes so that we can go deeper in our journey of faith and trust in him. By the way, if you probably missed in, ver- in chapter 6 who it is that talks to Gideon all this time. Verse 11 and 12 in chapter 6 says it's an angel of the Lord. But verse 14, 16, and 18 changes and makes clear who it really was. It says, the Lord spoke to Gideon. Translated here, Yahweh himself, God himself, or more accurately, the second person of the Trinity, shows up to talk to a scared Gideon. This hero, yes, hero because of his faith and trust in God, although it took God some work to get him there. This is God the Son pursuing Gideon, just like he also pursues you and me in the midst of our fear and our doubt. An amazing little detail that's there in the Old Testament. 1,200 years before God the Son will show up again and continue his pursuit of people who are plagued by fear and doubt. So the question I have to ponder this morning for you is, what is God perhaps asking of you? What is that thing that's causing you fear? I believe he he may be pushing you like he was me. Maybe it's just to stand in the middle of it and let him show up. Maybe it's to act right in the face of that fear. He's doing it because he loves you way too much to let you sit where you're at in in your relationship with him. And he longs for you to love him more deeply, to trust him more fully, and to truly rest in the faith that you have. Well, I hope your heart has been lifted along with mine as we worship God together. And I'm so thankful for these folks up here with the gift of prayer, aren't you? Just being able to raise our body up and share burdens together. And you're welcome to come down after the service as well to pray with someone if you want to. I'm going to give a benediction verse that's very appropriate for Memorial Day. And as I leave, uh, Kent is in the back and is going to share with you as you just reflect on this Memorial Day weekend. He's going to play taps to end our service. And so we'd like for you to just reflect on the sacrifices that have been made on your behalf and possibly say a prayer for someone you know who has made that sacrifice. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, than that a man would lay down his life for a friend. God bless you. Have a great Memorial Day.